0: This is the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology.
1: What's going on, everyone? And welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio podcast. If you work in security, you know that compliance sucks. The traditional requests for manual screenshots, spreadsheets, long meetings with auditors the list goes on and it's not a great experience but luckily there's bytecheck a platform designed to make compliance suck less with bytecheck you can establish your security program automate your readiness assessment and complete your SOC 2 examination faster all from a single platform the bytecheck platform is powered by the bytecheck engine which automatically assesses your controls against audit and security best practices. ByteCheck is founded by cybersecurity and accounting industry leaders with a combined 30 years of experience. That knowledge is ingrained in the ByteCheck engine to provide you with quality reports that meet applicable standards. If you're in the market for SOC 2, we have a special offer for Hacker Valley Studio listeners. You can get 50% off the annual subscription to the ByteCheck platform and a free readiness report from the ByteCheck team. Reach out to ByteCheck at ByteCheck.com and tell them Hacker Valley Studio sent you. This episode features David Sow. We get into David's background and learn more about his philosophies on leadership. David comes with a wealth of knowledge and is someone who is constantly innovating. He is a security advisor, and also he leads security engineering at Marquetta. So let's jump right into this episode.
0: What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again
1: here in the studio. And we've brought in a friend, a close friend of Hacker Valley Studio. We have David Sow. He is a security advisor, and also he leads security engineering at Marketa. David, it's been great knowing you as a friend, as a mentor, as a leader, but most importantly, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Ron and Chris, for having me on the show. I really appreciate being here.
0: No, thank you for being here, David. You've been instrumental to me over this past year, pathfinding with me, leading with me. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, would love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today.
2: Sure, so my background is not necessarily a traditional security one. Originally came from a uh, chemistry background and worked in pharma uh, for quite a while. But during that gig had a chance to get into security mostly because I didn't want anyone else to mess it up. And that led me down this path of what should security truly look like? Because I wasn't part of the security community from the very beginning. And it took a long time to get to know them and and now to f- finally feel part of this. Um, so I have done a couple stints between life sciences and tech, and then finally have ended up in Marketa, which is on the fintech side.
1: We met originally around three, maybe four years ago, and we were working together. I was one of your vendors. And I noticed that you had this strategy where there were some cybersecurity solutions that you would build, some that you would work with vendors to uh, help augment some of those gaps or weaknesses in your program. What is your mindset there? How do you decide when to build something versus when to buy something with all of the kind of opportunities you've had throughout your career?
2: Oh, that's a great question. Part of the security challenges that we face are trying to balance, do you find a solution that is fairly mature and has been around for a while and is proven? And I think it really depends on the environment that that you're working in. So at the companies that I've been in more recently, we have been more on the cloud native side. And so when we're looking for solutions, they don't necessarily work with the traditional tools that are available. As a result, we end up looking to more innovative solutions that typically come from security startups, which actually is really fun to work with, because then at that point, you can become design partners, work closely on their roadmaps while being sensitive to not trying to build something too much of a snowflake for our environment, but then also helping them to look at what cloud-native companies or modern tech companies are trying to work towards. The need to have something that you build, though, is partly driven by who on the team can have those Uh, most practical conversations with the vendor. So if the security team were staffed with predominantly, let's say, the traditional systems administrators, systems engineers, then they may not understand a lot of the underlying technology. So you want to have a good, healthy mix of someone that's also has a software engineering background, even if they have a passion for security. Then they can have fairly in-depth conversations with those vendors. The flip challenge to that is how do you keep your security engineers happy if they're constantly working with vendors? So finding areas for them to also have opportunities to build while still recognizing the cost of building something, because now you have to maintain it. It's a constant struggle that we try and balance.
0: So I've worked with organizations in the past that are really engineering minded. They love software development. They love different challenges. When do you decide that you're just going to go ahead and try to build it yourself?
2: Some of the things that we look for are what's the long-term cost to building something? And and it's usually quite significant because then you have to have a decent team that you're investing in. And then to balance that, what's the long-term cost to buying something? So an example would be user authentication services. It's actually quite a difficult problem to solve. And in many scenarios, you're probably better off buying something. But if what you're looking for is the Premium user experience, then that is part of it. Includes the user user experience for authentication. So that may in in a recent example at Marketa, that's a reason for us to choose to invest in building out those capabilities versus trying to buy something. The another option to consider that we had to consider is, hey, if we were to buy something, then all of our user credentials would then be stored within this third party. If we were to buy something we basically would be stuck with them forever. So there's too much stickiness and and the cost can sometimes be too great. Because if we wanted to switch off, we would then have to ask all of our users to change their credentials. And now we're getting to that original tenant that we talked about, uh, balancing, reducing user friction while improving uh, security. The user friction of having to change all their credentials would be quite high.
0: So with all those vendors out there in vendor land, how do vendors find the problems that they should tackle? Because more increasingly, you're having folks on your teams that can solve some of these basic problems. But when you're looking for really hard problems, where are vendors needing to look in order to find out what's going to be the next problem that someone's going to encounter? So I
2: think that there's a huge security startup ecosystem. And if you take a look at Momentum Cyber's chart, it's what, 2,000 plus solutions that are out there. So on one hand... There should be a solution that exists for a problem, just because there's so many <laughs> options, you would think. But then what we find in talking with as many startups or as many just security vendors as possible for specific problem areas is that oftentimes they're not quite exactly what the current needs are. and Or sometimes they may get it, but then they're not there yet. So I think things that vendors need to do, especially on the startup side, is build the relationships with VCs. And I think on the the startup founder side, that's actually relatively well-established. There's the classic innovator's dilemma where startups are great, but then they have their own limitations. That when you look at the more mature solutions that would have been easier to go to from a a customer perspective, hey, if we can engage with the large security vendors that are out there and they offer us multiple solutions, it's easier to try and manage that relationship on paper. The, The challenge is the innovator's dilemma is that then the larger companies tend to get slower. They tend not to be able to innovate as fast because they have this inertia of an existing customer base that they have to manage. So I think that's a very classic challenge that any technology or any type of you know, solution that is out there faces security, is certainly not an exception. And so the natural path that they tend to take is the whole m cycle of acquiring security startups, which as a customer is actually often not ideal. From a buyer of more kind of modern cloud native security solutions, we enjoy partnering with the smaller startups typically. And the, the exits for them when they get acquired is usually a negative outcome for the most part. So I would say it's a long way of answering your question, I would target towards the larger vendors and say that, hey, when you do acquire companies, make sure that you give them the independence to continue to innovate, find ways to incentivize and to keep that innovation as much as possible. It's not necessarily a solved problem, but I think that's something that they really have to keep forefront versus that natural, easy tendency of just finding ways to sell their solutions, the solutions they've acquired um, to the rest of the customer base and then forget the, the ability to continue to innovate.
1: I think that's great wisdom. One of the things that I was just thinking of while you were speaking was having somewhat of a founder's journey. So right now, you're not currently a founder at the organization that you're working at, but you founded security teams and you've done that uh, several times throughout your career. You did it at Viva, you're doing it at Marketa. I would like to hear a little bit about your founder's journey through building security teams. Like what kind of stories can you share or experiences have you had building teams from few people to dozens?
2: It's been a very both fun, but also uh, rewarding journey because there's a lot of growth that's involved, not just for myself, but growth on, on, on the team that is involved in that. So minimally when starting a team, because you don't really have uh, well-defined organizational design at that point, it's all about hiring generalists. And the the opportunity that we have is if we get to hire people brand new into these roles, then what type of experiences and capabilities are we looking for? So from a generalist perspective, based on a smaller team size, I think finding Uh, people that have strengths in two different areas at the same time are a great way to try and and build up that generalist uh, foundation. An example of this would be looking for hybrid builder breakers, individuals that have experience in breaking, perhaps working for, you know, a pen testing firm earlier in their career, but also have experience in building. And, you know, developing software services it's rare that they will be exceptional let's say at both because it's the the jack of all trades compromise however for the team size when they're smaller having that generalist experience and and skill set is more important than having a dedicated breaker or a dedicated builder in many cases Another example of a role that has two skill sets that we look for are ones that have experience on uh, modern infrastructure. So infrastructure as code is in the classic example, or maybe even backend development, and then also layering in uh, experience on the security side. So an example of this would have been on our detection and response teams, which we have called detection engineering. It's also partly why call the security teams security engineering is because it has this software engineering component to it. So that way you have that healthy balance as you're building up these teams. The other way that we've attempted to do this, certainly the latest iteration of this at Marketa has been to hire bottoms up first. So I think a lot of teams would end up hiring their leaders first and then let the leaders in turn do the recruiting and hire and build out of their own teams. That can certainly work very well. I'm not trying to discount that. But there are many situations, pros and cons to each of these. And I think one of the cons is that the risk of hiring top down is that you end up having people that look too similar to the leaders of those teams. And granted, everyone strives to have diversity in some shape or form, but it's easier to lose that when you hire that direction. Also, you end up being top heavy initially because now you're gonna be staffing your teams with managers first before you're able to bring on engineers. while you're still trying to solve problems because in most situations, your production infrastructure is already live. It's rare that you're gonna be able to build these teams in parallel With your product engineering teams.
0: You definitely have a deep leadership philosophy, and I absolutely love that. I was wondering, what was that first instance of you stepping into your leadership ability? How did you think it was going to be once you became a leader, and how was it different once you were actually there?
2: So, my first instance of leadership came when I had worked for my manager for quite a while, and he gave me an opportunity to hire my first person. And honestly, I I have to admit, I made many mistakes along the way in terms of the role, in terms of finding the candidate and the candidate, whether they were a good fit or not, despite having a lot of support and feedback and guidance along the way, I would say that my first few hires ended up being quite challenging and both for the, I have to, unfortunately for the people that filled those roles, as well as for myself and trying to figure out, oh, I can't just allow myself to scale and give them the problem set and off they go. It's how do I find ways to support them? I think as many folks who are on the people manager side have learned firsthand that the skill sets are very different than that of an individual contributor. And so I certainly went through that pain as well. I was fortunate that the company I worked for at that time, had a lot of uh, training and very relevant training. It was all um, in-house instructor-led training. And so that was incredibly helpful to help learn how to become a better people manager. But for sure, I would say there were many, unfortunately, mistakes that I had to make along the way.
1: You know, as being a leader, I think one of the most important things that you can do that you touched on a bit is enabling your members on your team, people that you're working with to make an impact. What are some of the best strategies that you like to implement to make sure that your team has the opportunities to make an impact?
2: I think Chris actually touched upon this in the, in the intro in terms of pathfinding. I think that tailoring and understanding the individual needs is really important. And so not only do we spend time on direct one-on-ones of my directs, but also I have skip levels right now as long as I can sustain them for everyone else on the team. And the reason is, It's super easy to have the operator symptom of everything, all the messaging getting filtered through the middle layer of managers and losing out exactly what it is that the individual of what they're looking for in their career. It's a tricky balance because I'm trying not to become too much of a micromanager, let's say. But having those discussions and talking about hey, long-term career paths, plus what are the shorter-term interests, and then trying to find ways to tie that into either the team objectives or the broader business objectives, and giving that context of, hey, if you choose to grow in this area, fantastic. It'll be well within what the company needs today. And then if at some point in time in the future, that growth begins to diverge and leads to a place where it's outside of what the company needs, from my perspective, it's and it's because this is the way that my managers had helped me, then I will help them grow in opportunities and wherever that need it wherever that exists. So a uh, classic example was in a uh, prior career, one of my mentors, my main mentor actually, like he was super supportive of me finding an opportunity outside of the company after I'd been there for a very long time. And it really surprised me that, hey, he wasn't just only looking for ways for me to grow within the company or keep me in a way that I would have been the most benefit to that company. Instead, he prioritized what was most important for my own career, And even if that turned out to be somewhere outside. So in many ways, all I'm trying to do here is having learned from how I was fortunate to have been treated in that way, and then finding ways to pass that on.
0: How do you find opportunities to give someone a chance, whether it's giving them a role or finding a home for them in the place that they want to go? Because I've seen you do this a number of times. You give people chances and you bring people in that have good hearts. They have good intentions. They have passions. They have places that they want to go. How do you keep track of where someone should go? Or is it more of a feeling like I, you just have a feeling that someone deserves to be in this position or they could use the lessons they could learn from being at this company? Uh, what is, how does that dance happen in your mind?
2: In a prior role, I had some headcount that turned out to be incredibly difficult to fill because one of the approvers of, of the hiring process was very picky and it ended up that I had talked to a lot of folks. (laughs) And I was frustrated at the time because we kept making offers for highly qualified candidates and for a variety of reasons we couldn't get them. But the silver lining to that was, this was several years ago now, I got to track the career journeys of these, what I thought were high potential, high performing individuals and at other companies and and to see the paths that they ended up taking while still trying to keep in the back of my mind, why were they ultimately effectively rejected for that particular role? And I think in a lot of situations, it comes down to some of the limitations of the interview process, where it's, if, if we just focus on that for a moment, like it's really easy in those, whatever, 30, 45 minutes to make snap decisions or to look at something on a resume and think that, oh, this is all the person knows, this is all that they're capable of. And after having seen like the actual progression that these other people have taken i think that has proven at least in my mind that you don't necessarily have to be boxed in now so can people either be given second chances or can people break the those stereotypes and mold absolutely so it's a similar type of exercise in in trying to be open-minded around what are the opportunities that each person should have and it's really it's like a natural tendency, at least for myself, to try and stereotype them as, oh, you're going to be a builder in this role. You're going to work in detection and response. Therefore, keep specializing in that. And I have to constantly remind myself, hey, remember when we looked back at this and saw how other people that we thought would have taken a certain path, that's not always the case. So it really is one of those nature versus nurture scenarios of, hey, if you're in a particular environment, the company is still small enough that we still have a need for these generalist roles there's a lot of opportunity that's here. And let's do these kind of stretch goals and see, can someone take a particular challenge and grow into it and be successful? The, the reason that we're capable of doing that in the companies that fortunately I've been at so far is that there's also a tolerance for failure. Now you try and fail fast and you try and you know not repeat the same mistakes over and over again, but by being able to experiment, essentially, then I know we're not going to be chewed out or something like that if we try something. And we tried it in a careful way and in a thoughtful way, but it's still ultimately that experiment fails and the person wasn't able to grow into that role. That's okay. They will still learn something from it. I feel like just like I had learned from the mistakes that I had made.
1: A few things that you said that Chris has said, I think I've even said it once at this point is generalist and versus master of one. There's a lot of individuals who listen to the podcast who haven't yet broke into the cybersecurity field. And from your perspective, I think you can give a very unique view on breaking into the field since you're in the hiring seat. A lot of people will ask, hey, what would you do today if you were to break into the field? But if you were looking at candidates that could be eligible to do their first job in cybersecurity, what kind of things would you look at from a hiring manager perspective?
2: Some of the qualities I think that you look for, especially for someone first getting into security, there's some basic behaviors that you're looking for in terms of that passion, that hunger, that willingness to learn and adapt. It fits in line with security as a practice, partly just because not only is it an immature industry or immature practice relative to, I think, software engineering as a whole, but also it is so broad that there's tons of opportunities all over the place and you almost have to be able to adapt to whatever the needs that come up. It's one of the things around security is there's a, a significant portion that's still interrupt driven, whether that's a security incident or some other team that's asking you for some help. There's Those are the types of things you cannot really plan for as easily. So you have to be able to adjust, wear multiple hats, balance that workload. And so that's where finding even newer either Junior or entry level folks, that's certainly a skill set. In a prior career, we did experiment with hiring folks where security was brand new to them, but it was not their first career. They had more established careers in other fields and they were trying to then break into security. And I, to your point, there is a classic tendency in some situations to try and learn about classic hacking or breaking, let's say. And oftentimes, I think that is a little bit premature. Like it's cool and it's fun to find that other side of how how things can work and and looking at it from a breaker perspective. So it's useful to have that mindset, but oftentimes it's more important to learn the fundamentals of how the underlying systems that you're supporting actually work, whether that's in incident response or whether that's on infrastructure or within the application stack itself. Learning those base foundations, I think, actually turn out to be more helpful because then you understand how things work and then you can apply The security breaker mindset on top of that. So finding people that whether they have that full background or not, if they have that interest in growing and that adaptability within a team, what we'll look at is, okay, we can probably sustain a certain number of people that need to be coached and mentored and grown, but it's, a, I think, a very legitimate way to grow a team and to recruit for a team because you can't always find people that meet the more strict traditional criteria of a security job description.
0: It's evident to everyone that you're a, a cybersecurity leader and people can see that. But one of the things I wanted to bring up is the conversations we have that aren't necessarily about cybersecurity. We talk about impact. From a community standpoint, we talk about impact from a society, and if we allow just a smidge of hubris into that conversation, we talk about how we could change the world. I'd love to hear about your philosophies on the the social commentary that's that's going on right now, the future of how we can actually help each other from a, a diversity and inclusion standpoint, a wealth and income gap perspective. What are some of the things that you're thinking about today?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that. It is. Great to be able to share kind of some thoughts there. So it was actually several years ago when I was thinking about my next move from a job perspective. And I was thinking, hey, in the long-term, what is it that I really wanna be able to accomplish? Do I wanna be able to have built out a massive team as an example, or have worked for a rocket ship company and, and that has a marquee brand? And obviously, hopefully we try and do all those things. But at the end of the day, like on my deathbed scenario, do I really care? Would I really be proud of those things? And and if not, what would I be missing? And what are the things that I strive for, should have strived for? And I remember having conversations with some friends uh, a long time ago that thought about the greater challenges that we have within the U- U.S. specifically, whether that's around education, around you know, immigration, cultural dynamics, everything especially that has come up recently as well. And I remember Actually, even applied for a role with uh, the Kapoor Center out in Oakland, because they looked at social impact investing. And the thought was, hey, maybe I should get into social investing as a VC. And it's not about the money. It's more around like, how do you make an impact within a local community? Even going back to some of the startups that I, in in fact, almost the very first startup that I did probably about 20 years ago, one of the main products that it was building out was around education at high school for high schoolers and taking pro- project-based learning as an approach right around when the summit schools were being developed around the same time, right before, unfortunately, because if we had known about it, we would have deferred to the summit schools and others. But in, but in either way, throughout this process, i trying to share. like Throughout my career, I would say there's always been in the back of my mind of, yeah, what's the bigger picture here that we should be considerate of? And you know, I think even looking at what other organizations, they may be somewhat controversial, but like Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, if we just dissect the problem statements that they're trying to solve for, I think those are legitimate areas that we need to be conscious of in terms of legal reform, education. There's very broad issues that we as a country are facing today. Now, how do we tie all this back? Whether we think about ways to grow diverse teams, and I think what Chris, you and I have talked about, there may be there may be high potential candidates that we could find, but don't necessarily have the skill sets of a modern tech organization. But how do we find ways to give them those opportunities and to be able to grow? Because they may be stuck in roles that are more well fit to traditional security teams. And when I look at kind of modern tech companies and how they've traditionally been grown, a lot of them would come out of the Bay Area or in other kind of tech hubs. And now, Wonderful thing, actually, is the ability to hire more remotely across the board has been equally given us an opportunity to hire people pretty much from any background and any type of job role that they have today. Definitely looking at ways that we can try and help, whether that's building in place uh, more structured educational opportunities or from a social impact perspective, it's not necessarily tied to the job per se right now, but it is something that I've been continually thinking about of how we can extend that out. It's a long way of saying, look, when we look at security solutions, there's usually due diligence things that we get involved with in terms of how those companies are founded and, and trying to find ways to apply those same practices to essentially the social impact side of the world as well. And looking, trying to solve the problems in the same way. Now, a lot of these things are just many different ideas, and and the question is how many of them come to fruition and and actually come true. That's a much harder question to answer because a lot of these are still in the formation phase. But I would love to find ways, whether that's through this podcast, of people who are interested in trying to work together on solving these problems. Um, I'd love to have a conversation around
0: that that's great. would love to pull some people together and and make change. I'd love to hear a story about when you've had a taste of that social change and it comes from you. Maybe you could walk us through a story where you felt like you made a difference and it could be in a single person's life. It can be a group of people, but could you walk us through one of your fondest memories of being able to make a difference?
2: Sure. Probably over 10 years ago, This was back when East Palo Alto was still in the early stages of its gentrification. And I had joined an early stage or volunteered for an early stage nonprofit called Build. And what they would do is help high school students to start a business, become an entrepreneur, and execute on that business. But they were specifically targeting underrepresented minorities as part of that. And in East Palo Alto, they don't actually have their own high school. And so a lot of those high school students would get bused to Menlo Atherton or schools in San Carlos, where the socioeconomic demographic there is generally upper middle class, if not upper class. So you have this very unusual mix of students. So worked with a number of students that were there, and I just remember... For the the Black students, essentially, a lot of them were first in their family that would have gone to college. And I remember one in particular where partway through, I think I mentored there for two or three years, partway through the journey there, her brother was killed. And it turned out that every single brother she's had, it was at least two or three others, when they reach a certain age in their teenager years, they were all murdered. And I just, mm. it was dumbfounded by this, but this is not in the news. This is not like, where do we hear about these things? Like how, why aren't we doing anything about it? This is tragic. I couldn't do anything at that point for her family, but hey, let's see what we can do for the team. At least she's still part of this team. This is her first journey in in starting a business. And it didn't honestly, I can't remember what the actual business was. It was called star mentality, but seeing them grow through that journey and to build a social bond with their fellow classmates as part of that team was very rewarding to see. I I regret not staying in contact with them and and seeing where they've come today. But to me, that was one of the memories that
1: stood out in my mind. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. What When it comes to making an impact like you're striving to do even years ago and that you're striving to do today, when it comes to making an impact for your community, I think us in technology, we forget about how much power and control and influence we really have. So for anyone that's wanting to make an impact in their community, what would be a a few good places that you'd recommend to start with?
2: Yeah, thank you. So I think there's a lot of opportunities, especially at the, the city government, essentially, or the, the local community that we live in. And when I think about the problems that we face, it's really easy for myself included to get swept into, oh, if we could solve this at the country level or even at the state level. And I want recognize those are very difficult kind of platforms or spaces to get into and to truly have an impact unless you're really dedicated to it. But it's actually fairly straightforward to get involved at the city government level. And an example of this, I joined the Hayward City Community Services Commission, where we review Grant, applicate, grant applicants for whatever we feel that the community needs. And it's typically broken down into things like immigration, domestic abuse, homelessness. There's a lot of different areas that different cities face, and then they try and, and find ways to invest it through these grants in various nonprofit agencies. So, as part of that vetting process, as a community member, we get to take input from our community and then decide where some of these dollars will go. And when I look at the commission members, a lot of folks, I, I think there's maybe it was like one or two other people on, on the team of maybe close to 20 that came from tech. So it's really easy for us to get sucked into our day-to-day and to forget the impact that we have or we can have on our local community. Other examples there would be around not only domestic violence, sex trafficking, and realizing it was an eye-opening experience around the degree of, of minor or child trafficking that occurs within the Bay Area, as an example. Again, not something that I typically would read about in the news, but then once you're part of nonprofits and you're, and you're talking to them and understanding what they're seeing on the ground, it's, it's like incredible to realize, oh my goodness, these are things that we need to start paying attention to. And... Being part of the local community makes it easier to feel bought in that ownership and, and the willingness to make a change and to help them.
0: Listening to you talk, it makes me think of one of my favorite moments on the podcast. We had MacInde, the founder of Dev Color, and he talked about when he decided to step in and form Dev Color and, and create this movement. He said that it starts with those small steps. It doesn't, Nelson Mandela didn't step out to make this great movement. He just wanted to make change at the local level, then at the, the country level. And then all of a sudden, he's making change across the world. And I think that's something that folks need to remember as they want to go out and become change makers. What's one piece of advice that you would have for somebody that has it in them to make change in this world? And how would you inspire them to go ahead and take those first steps?
2: So having, it's fantastic if you can find someone that has that desire to make a change. And also, I think there are decent communities that exist around nonprofit agencies or kind of social impact communities, whether that's even look like the the Rotary Clubs or the, or the Lion Clubs of the world, I think are examples of this, but getting involved in the city government level whether that's just participating or attending a council meeting or taking a look at some of the commissions that they may have and looking at who are the commissioners and reach out to them because pretty much everyone's going to be on LinkedIn these days. And there's been some fantastic kind of local community advocates that are part of the commission that I'm on that I've gotten to to hear from and, and hear their perspectives and hear the history of the city as an example of Hayward that I had no idea. And These individuals would be more than thrilled to be able to talk to anyone else that has an interest or a passion and wants to be able to do something, but they don't really know how to engage. And in talking with these community advocates that have been working in this space as nonprofit leaders, one of the members I think was the head of a local hospital and another one's head of a nonprofit agency. So we have a lot of different folks, at least on the examples I'm thinking about that would be very happy to to talk and share their stories and to give
0: opportunities to help. Fantastic, David. Thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for hopping on the mics today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all of the things that you have going on, what are the best ways that people can do that?
2: So I have to say, LinkedIn is probably the one way that's uh, the best way to reach me. I'm, I'm really not active on Twitter at all. But uh, if you put in the message when you reach out, just some note in terms of what you're looking for, I, ha- I I have to admit I haven't been very responsive to most. But I will certainly make an earnest effort to to try and respond and to see what I can do to help. Because I, I definitely I love the ability to be able to reach out and talk to more folks. And so uh, it is something I will definitely make an investment in
1: perfect we'll be sure to drop your linkedin in the show notes we love linkedin also so that's a perfect place and thanks so much david and we'll see everyone next time thank you so much for having me really appreciate it if you enjoy our content it would mean so much to us if you shared this episode on social media told a friend or wrote us a review on your favorite podcast streaming platform